Uh, today we're at chapter 8. What I want to do today is I want to give you a very fast little background as to what we've been looking at. Then I'm going to read the story, and we're going to get to work. Uh, basically, up until this point, Mark, the first eight chapters, has been regularly showing us stories and little snapshots, little vignettes about the life of Jesus. He's been retelling the Jesus story over and over again in all sorts of different dimensions and all sorts of different ways. I think the main purpose for this is that Mark is wanting for us to sort of take a step back from the text and really ask the bigger question, who's Jesus? Who is this guy? Who's this guy that, you know, with his voice stops a hurricane? And who's this guy that with his spit opens someone's eyes? And who's this guy that sticks his fingers into someone's ears and he's no longer deaf? And who's this guy that can take some guy's Lunchable and multiply it into feeding 5,000 plus people? Who is this guy? Like, who can do all these things? Mark really wants us to keep asking these questions because he wants for us to come close face to face, I should say, with Jesus and really know who he is. Well, in chapter 8, uh, Jesus actually asks that question himself. He comes right out, and he basically breaks the silence, and he comes directly to his disciples, his uh, apostles, and he asks them, who do people say that I am? But more poignantly, he turns to them and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up on behalf of the apostles, and he says, you're the Christ. And we started kind of looking at this a little bit last week, that when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that word Messiah or Christ is an Old Testament word. Basically, it means king, but it's not just any king. It's not a king like Caesar, or it's not a king like Pharaoh, or it's not like a king like Nebuchadnezzar, or a king like uh, a, a, an official political uh, figurehead. It's, it's not the type of king that the word Messiah would begin to drum up images of. The king that Jesus is referring to, and the king that Jesus is going to begin to sort of fill out the idea is, is that it's a king to end all kings. That he's a king over all kings. He's a king that will actually come into the world and not bring more evil and more injustice into the world the way oftentimes kings do. But he's a king that will fight against evil and injustice. He's a king that will make all the wrongs right. That's, that's the king that Jesus comes and claims to be. The problem is, is that there's a little bit of a conflict in the text. And the conflict is between Jesus' definition of what Messiah is, and Peter, along with the disciples and the apostles, their understanding what Messiah is. And so you have sort of a conflict going on. And the reason why this is so important in the story, and why I think Mark highlights it here, and actually all the other gospel accounts picture this, is because really at the end of the day, this is the issue that faces you. This is the issue in your life, and in my life. And it still affects us. Because here's the problem. All of us, just like the apostles, we have these false ideas. We have these agendas of what we expect this king to do. In other words, we come with our own little list, our to-do list. We come with our own little job description, our own little role identity, our own little agenda. We bring it to Jesus. And we're like, Jesus, you're king. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get me a job. I want you to get me a nice house. I want you to make sure that I make this type of figures for my income. I want you to get me this spouse that looks like this. And I want you to give me these types of kids. And I want them to all be healthy. And if you don't do this, I'll turn my back on you. And I will curse you to your face. Because that's what I do when any other king, even you king, Jesus, don't work according to my agenda. That's what happened with Peter. He flipped out when Jesus says, Peter, here's your role description. <laughs> Throws it on the ground. Like, no, I'm not going to do your agenda. I'll do my agenda. 
Here's what we've been saying all along. If Jesus is the king, and you're not, you don't come to the king with your agenda. You don't come to the king with your identification, with your list of what he's to do for you. You come to the king humbly, and you let him speak. You let him communicate. You let him be Lord. You let him do what he says, because he's a king. That's how you approach a king. But if you don't think he's a king, somebody or something else will be king. Most often, it will be yourself that will be the king. And you will come with your agenda. And as long as the king stays in line with your agenda, then you're fine. As long as the king goes off track with your agenda, you're angry. You're upset. But what we've been saying all along is this, is that when you create your own agenda for the king, and you create your own Jesus, your own ideas as to what you think Jesus should do for you, the problem is, is that Jesus that you've created, when your life gets hard, when things get difficult, when you're confronted with hardships and troubles and trials and tribulation, or confronted with the weight of your own sin, that Jesus that you created cannot help you because he doesn't exist. He's not real. You created him. He's impotent. He has no power. He has no words of wisdom, no love to give to you because he's nothing more than a puppet that you've created. And so what Mark really wants us to do is wrestle with the text, to wrestle with who Jesus is, to come to answers with who Jesus is, and ultimately not to just walk away and affirm, oh, he's Lord, but to be so moved by the reality and the revelation that he's king that we fall on our knees in worship and adoration of him. That we're changed. Viscerally, we're changed. Radically, we're transformed. Not just thinking differently, but changed. We act differently. We look at other people differently. We love people in a different way. We forgive people in a way that God's forgiven us. The gospel actually begins to have its way in transforming us. Not just, Jesus is an addition to my life, and I like Jesus because I really like to study, so I read my Bible a lot. Or I like Jesus because I think he talks about healing, and so I'll come to Jesus because I hope Jesus can do little things for my life. Jesus and Mark want for us to really come to grips with who Jesus is so that our lives would be changed. Because outside of that, we lose our lives. When we come creating our own little gods, we actually end up becoming lost and broken and destroyed. And at some point, we'll face an eternity of that. So this is a serious issue. So there's two things I think Mark wants us to deal with and wrestle with. The first of which I will just basically take a look at in a story is uh, what is the king's agenda? That's the first question that we're going to ask. And then secondly, we're going to really ask the question, how are we to receive the king's agenda? First, what is the king's agenda? Second, how are we to receive the king's agenda? So I want to read the passage, and then, uh, then we'll get to work taking a look at those two questions. The first that we'll just kind of pick up here, I want to jump back at verse 29. It's not on the screen, uh, but I'll just read it, and then you guys can listen, and then the rest of it will be up on the screen. But verse 29 basically starts off and it says this, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered, he said, you're the Christ. And then he strictly charged them that they are to tell no one about him. And then verse 31, Jesus then basically deconstructs their whole idea, their whole assumptions as to what the Messiah would be. And here's what he says in verse 31. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days he would rise again. And he said this to them plainly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind upon the things of God, but on things of men. And he called to him a crowd from his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for the sake of the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I'm going to pray real quick and we'll get to work. Jesus, we need your help. We just ask you, Father, that you just open our eyes. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to learn what you want us to learn. God, I pray that more than anything, that we would see Jesus as a, as a good God, as a king that paid the most unbelievable price for people that didn't deserve it. God, that that truth would radically change us. So help us to see that now as we begin to look at your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First question is this, is what's the king's agenda? Well, Jesus starts out in a handful of verses or a handful of words, and he basically says something that's really important. He, what he basically does is, like I said earlier, he deconstructs the agenda that was given to him. In other words, what I mean by this is, is in the first century, the Jews had this idea of what the king would, would, would come to do. The concept of a Messiah was not new. It wasn't just merely around first century. The concept of the Messiah is this idea that one day God would send a king. The Jews had always speculated as to what the king would do, but most Jews had agreed that the king would come through the line of David. He would be a king like David. He would come and he would reign. He would overthrow God's enemies. He would overthrow the oppressors. Now here's the problem. In the first century, if you were to ask any Jew, who fits that description? Like who, who are the oppressors that the king would overthrow? So I ask you, who do you think the oppressors in the mind of a first century Jew would be the oppressors in the first century. Who would that be? Rome. Right, so in their minds, they no doubt would think that Rome is the problem. Rome is the oppressor. Rome doesn't show justice. Rome isn't kind. And so just like with Pharaoh, uh, one day God will send a deliverer, and he will deliver us from Pharaoh. In their minds, they thought one day God will send this king. This king will deliver us the way uh, Moses came and delivered the people of Israel from Pharaoh. That This king would set up, and he would rule and reign. He'd be like a king. He'd overthrow these things. Now, we know this, that this is the way that they thought, because later on, you're going to see arguments arise periodically amongst the disciples, and the arguments would kind of go something like this, you know, like, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can we rule on your right hand and on your, right, on your left hand? In other words, you had the disciples sort of bickering back and forth as to who was going to be sort of Jesus' chief advisory council, right? Who are going to be Jesus' chief, you know, warriors in his kingdom, problem is that was a little bit, now imagine these guys have been following Jesus for about two and a half, maybe, right, yeah, about two and a half years, two, two and a half years now so far. Not once in their two years together did Jesus ever say, guys, okay, now we're going to learn how to use a sword. Not once did Jesus say, okay, now I'm going to teach you like ninja stealth moves, all right? Not once I'm going to show you guys how to do arm-to-arm combat. Not once did Jesus ever teach them how to like take them down to the ground and start wrestling them, throw an armbar on them. Jesus never once taught them anything on how to fight. In fact, quite to the contrary, Jesus is like, here's what we're going to do today, guys. You can imagine in their mind, like, oh, we're going to learn something really good today. We're going to learn how to conquer, slit the throat of the enemy silently. But Jesus is like, we're going to go feed 5,000. Oh, okay, maybe we'll do that tomorrow. Like, maybe we'll kill some people on the way. Like, maybe we'll overtake, like, you know, some sort of soldier station, and none of this ever happened. So to imagine in their mind, they're just kind of like, when are we going to overthrow the Romans? 
And Jesus is like, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go heal some guy who's blind. Like, guess what we're going to do today, guys? We're going to go across the river. And they're like, oh, sweet, we're going to kill the enemies over there. She's like, we're going over there because there's a demon-possessed guy that needs our help. Jesus is blowing their mind, blowing their expectations, blowing their agenda. Here's the idea. I think that if Peter, for example, and John and the other disciples had been given their way, their agenda, if their agenda were to come to pass, they at some point would ascend into greatness alongside Jesus, if Jesus became the king the way that they expected. They would take the swords out of the Roman soldiers' hands. I can imagine them envisaging themselves slaying their enemy, killing the soldiers that had oppressed the people, and they see themselves as victors. problem with that whole vision is you're not conquering evil. You're just letting evil come out in other ways. Because vengeance... Like that, retaliation, isn't conquering evil. It's just spreading it out. And you guys know this. Some of you know this really well. Because some of you live your life trying to bring vengeance upon those that have hurt you. That's how you live. Problem with that is, is when you try to be the avenger, at some point, you have this mentality in your mind, you're like, I'm going to take out vengeance upon the evildoers. At some point, you become like the evildoers. You don't conquer evil. You're conquered by evil. But Jesus says, look, I'm really serious about conquering evil. And the way that we're going to conquer evil is that Rome is not the full evil. It's not the true evil. It's a parody of the true evil. The true evil is deeper, darker, bigger, stronger, greater than what you can ever even imagine. And it cannot be conquered by a sword. But they didn't get this. They had their own agenda. They had their own expectations as to what the Messiah would do. Jesus basically essentially comes to them and says, I'm going to tear up your agenda, throw it on the ground, and I'm going to redefine it. That's what Jesus does. And here's what Jesus says about the redefinition of his agenda. We'll take a look at three statements. The first of which is Jesus says in verse uh, 31, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. This is such an important sentence. I want to take a look at each statement one by one. The first one beginning with the word or the phrase Son of Man. Very important. This is a designation or a phrase that Jesus exclusively used for himself. You don't find other writers kind of defining Jesus as, oh, who's Jesus? Oh, he's the son of man. You don't even see New Testament writers in terms of uh, the epistles. They don't describe Jesus really as the son of man. This is a designation that Jesus himself takes upon himself. And now you've got to understand, Jesus was a first century Jew. Jesus would have been steeped in Hebrew tradition and Hebrew scripture. He would have known Hebrew scripture. So anytime Jesus is going to use a phrase, he knows why he's using this phrase. So when Jesus chooses the phrase to describe himself or to depict himself son of man, he knows exactly what he's doing. He has a reason for this. And Jews, they, again, oftentimes I've said this before, they treated certain phrases as sort of hyperlinks. In other words, when you use certain phrase, phrases, they would have this sort of uh, idea that would draw you back to an Old Testament passage or an Old Testament idea. Um, for example, I can say like four score and seven years ago. Like, what does that mean? Like, if you just moved here from another country, you've never, you're not familiar with anything American idiom, you would have no idea. You're like, what's that? But like, if you're here, you're like, oh, Abraham Lincoln. I think I said that right, four score and seven years, right? I just want to make sure I'm like historically accurate here. Like, like most would be like, oh, Abraham Lincoln. Your mind immediately went back to Abraham Lincoln. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's like, son of man. Immediately their mind would have gone to Old Testament passage. I think the Old Testament passage they would have gone to the next slide. 
is probably out of Daniel chapter 7. I think it's really important to know this verse, uh, and I'll tell you very quickly the story of this. Daniel is having this dream, this vision that he has. And in this vision, he, uh, he, he uh, sees um, world kingdoms. And these world kingdoms are actually depicted as beasts like a, a bear or a lion. And uh, there's a reason why Daniel has these visions of seeing world-conquering nations as bears and lions as, and not as like, like little bunny rabbits and cute little lambs. It's because they're not gentle, they're not nice, they're not cute, they're wicked, they're evil, they're oppressive. Isn't that true? Isn't that true of most global world-dominating kingdoms? I mean... If you look at history, you realize that most kingdoms may have started out with good ideas, good agendas, good thoughts, but at some point, because they're so interlaced with evil and evil people, because evil is a part of who we are, those institutions that may have started out combating evil become evil themselves within the process. Does that make sense? In other words, they're vicious beasts. And so in this vision, Daniel sees amongst these evil beasts another rise up. And here's what he says. He says, With the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came with the Ancient of Days, or came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. So most scholars would agree that the phrase, or the Ancient of Days here, is a name depicting God the Father. Well, the Son of Man obviously raises the question, who's this? And if Jesus chooses the phrase, or the, uh, the title Son of Man, he's no doubt depicting that he himself is this one identified in Daniel who's coming before the Ancient of Days. This is what Jesus is saying. This is not a small thing that Jesus is saying about himself. So here's what he goes on to say in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So here's what Jesus is saying. When he uses that little phrase, son of man, he has this entire verse in mind. In fact, I would even go so far as to say he has the entire chapter of Daniel 7 in mind. That's what he means. So when you read Jesus depicting himself as the Son of Man, it's not a small thing. It's one of the reasons why when Jesus, towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, he's confronted by the chief priests and they ask him, who are you? And Jesus is like, one of these days you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory, the judge. You know what Jesus is saying? I am the one that was predicted in Daniel chapter 7 that will conquer all things. And that's why the high priest tore his clothes and freaked out. Because in essence, he was saying that I am the king of all kings. I'm the anointed one. This is powerful, what Jesus is saying. And the second phrase that Jesus uses here, he says that the Son of Man must, and this is a really strong, imperative word that just designates it has to be done. It's not part of the agenda that might get done. I mean, think about this. Most of us have day-to-day -day agendas that we live according to. There's things that are on our list that are like, I hope to get this done. But not many of us live with sort of this urgency that, like, I have to get this done. Like, I have to pay my bill today. Like, you know, if you don't pay it, yes, you might get electricity turned off, and that may be bad, but you're not going to die as a result of that, right? You might think you're going to die because you don't have Wi-Fi, but... You'll keep going on. There is life after the internet. But the point I'm to make is this, is that Jesus is designating this upon himself. He's saying, I must do something. The Son of Man must do something. And what Jesus does is absolutely mind-blowing the next words that come out of his mouth. And here's what he says. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, 
be killed, and rise again. In the mind of Peter and the other disciples, to hear that Jesus must suffer, if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the king that's come to stand out above and beyond all other kings, it doesn't make sense, and why would you die? It doesn't make any sense. Because in Peter's mind, this idea that a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. Dead Messiahs are worthless. Dead Messiahs can't do anything. Dead Messiahs can't reign. Dead Messiahs can't help. Dead Messiahs can't liberate. Dead Messiahs... You get the idea, right? And this is the first time, actually, most scholars would all agree, ever, that there were two major streams in the Old Testament. One stream... Uh, was that there would be a king that would one day come and he would rule and he would reign and he would be powerful. And there was another stream that comes out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, 54 and so on and so forth that speaks about this messenger or this uh, servant of Yahweh, servant of God. And this servant of God out of Isaiah chapter 53 describes whoever this is, again, Jews had no clue, that whoever this servant was, he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And no one until Jesus had ever taken the prophecies of a ruling reigning king and the prophecy of a suffering servant and merge them together. That's what Jesus does. He says, I, I am a king. I am the king of all kings, but I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die, and I must rise again. This is so powerful, so profound. It just abs- This would have absolutely short-circuited the religious leaders let alone Jesus' disciples, they couldn't understand this. Why? Because they had their own agenda. They had their own ideas. Well, that's not how we expected or anticipated the Messiah to be. And we'll see in a moment here that Peter actually rebukes Jesus as a result of this, and we'll try to understand why. But I want to take a look at even further kind of this idea that Jesus has to die. This is so important because what Jesus is saying here is that, yes, I'm the king, but part of my mission is not to ascend to a throne. All kings would go to thrones. That's easy. Any king can rise to a throne. Any king could have a sword in his hand and go to a throne and conquer his enemies and spill their blood and oppress them. That's classic, natural order of how kings work. Like that's, that's been the regular template since the beginning of time. If you're a king, this is what all kings do. This is the job description of every king. Grab the former king's sword, cut off his head, establish your rule and reign, take up his throne. Any king can do that. That's the template of all kings. Jesus says, this king, me, I will die. Why? Why did Jesus have to die? I want to look at three, what's basically been oftentimes described as atonement metaphors, or as why Jesus died, ways to answer this. Throughout the history of the church, there's been all sorts of attempts to try to describe why did Jesus have to die. I want to basically go through three of them. Uh, the three most predominant reasons as to why Jesus died. Take a look at the next slide. It's actually a chart for those of you that like charts, so there you go. I'm going to take a look at three. First is what's called Christ as the victor. Second is Christ as the example. And third is Christ the substitute. Let's take a look at Christ the victor. Basically, the reason why Jesus had to die, or because Jesus died, what ended up happening was that he was able to defeat the powers of the devil, of sin, and of death, which oppress all things. The Bible basically describes to us that what's happened in this world, the reason why this world is broken, the reason why things 
transpire the way they do, the reason why there's evil and why everyone's suspicious of everyone else, the reason why there's so much sin and why people buy locks for their doors and train pit bulls to attack enemies and why people buy guns and why everybody's suspicious of everybody else is because something's not right in this world. We all know it. The Bible's going to describe the reason for that is because it begins with the devil. He's our accuser. He is wicked. He was a fallen angel. But what's happened is that Sin has been introduced into this world, which is rebellion against God. It's our way of basically saying, I will do what I want to do. I won't follow God. I won't follow his ways. And as a result of that, Paul's going to say later in Romans chapter 3, is that the wages of sin is death. Is that all men have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed God's purposes. And we've, we will die. But it's not just us who dies, but it's everything that dies. Right? The older you get, when you're young, you don't believe this quite yet. I mean, when you're like late 20s, or I should say maybe early 20s, uh, when you're like late teens, you really don't believe this. You really don't believe, oh, things are going to die. All these old people are telling me everything's going to die. But wait till you start getting your late teens, early 30s, and you start realizing things start dying. I mean, everything dies. I mean, have you ever noticed that this is just the rhythm of life? This is the way the rhythm of things are? Things that we enjoy, things that we love, things that kind of reach their climax, and they're beautiful, and they're good, as soon as they reach this peak, this height, all of a sudden, everything just goes downhill from there. It could be a relationship, right? Think about this. First time you fell in love, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Like, you are in sort of the state of euphoria. The cloud nine, you can't believe it. And all of a sudden, you get in your first argument. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, euphoria died. I don't know how to get euphoria back. Where'd it go, you know? And the reality is, is these are examples of how things just die. Those are simple examples. The older you get, the more you realize that other things that have greater weight and greater value end up dying. Children die. Spouses die. Parents die. Jobs die. This world is corroding and dying. Things that we love. The beautiful day that we love to enjoy dies. It's called a sunset. Everything dies. The Bible basically says the reason why is that things are not right in this world. But the metaphor of Jesus dying as Christ the victor has come to make right all that which is wrong universally. That doesn't mean that all are going to be saved because all won't be saved. It does mean, though, that universally in terms of the cosmos, all created order. One of the greatest chapters on this is Romans chapter 8. I encourage you to read it. Paul basically takes a summary of all of his vast teachings on this and compiles it in Romans chapter 8 and says, you want to know what God's doing with the cosmos, with the universe, with all things? God, because of Jesus dying, suffering on the cross and rising again, God is at work because he has demonstrated victory over the powers that be, the power of the devil, the power of sin, and the power of death. Jesus has crushed it all. And that's what he's doing at his work. The second metaphor that we see is that Christ, the example. And we see this demonstrated like in Romans chapter 5, 8, 1 Peter 2, 21. We see that Jesus demonstrated his love for us, thereby creating us for, for us a way to transform our hearts. We need this. We need to know this. We need to know. This is one of the reasons why in the New Testament that Paul oftentimes is talking about how loved we are. And the chief example of knowing that we're loved is the cross. But Jesus had to go to the cross to die. He demonstrates his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
For some of you, you really need to know this because so much of your life is lived trying to find somebody to affirm you, trying to find something to love you. And it doesn't exist. You find it, you might have it for a couple weeks, a couple months, but at some point it goes away. At some point it lets you down. At some point it too dies. It can't sustain the desires of your heart and the desires of your soul. What we really need is we need somebody to love us just for who we are, not for what we do and not for what we add to them. Most of our love is love given out in order to be given back. That's not really love. Being a mercenary. In other words, I will love you as long as you add something to me. Think about this. It's one of the reasons why sometimes we choose the careers that we choose or we choose the friends, friends that we choose. Because the people that we choose, the people that we select to be a part of our life are the ones that are going to add something to us, right? Some people that we choose to hang out with, some people that we would say, I would never hang out with those people. I don't want to be seen with those people because I'm seen with those people. Other people might see me with those people and think less of me. You're not able to love those people just for the sake of them being them. What we really need is someone to kickstart this whole thing. We need somebody to love us just for who we are, in spite of ourselves, just because they in and of themselves are loving. And the Bible says that that's who and what God is. That God loved us, not to gain something from us, not because he was deficient in love, not because God wanted to be seen with us, because somehow God would be added to, his character would be built up, and God loved us just simply because he loved us. And that's what the cross teaches us. The third one is this, is that Christ, the substitute. There's another word for this, so you can describe this as substitutionary penal atonement. It's a big word, big phrase. Substitution basically means Christ substitute himself, right? The idea of a substitute, if you don't have a teacher that particular day, your typical teacher is gone, you end up having a substitute. They fill in the place. That's what a substitute is. Penal means there's a judgment. There's a price to be paid. There's something that's been wrong, and therefore something needs to be made right. Penal. There's a penalty that needs to be paid. So substitution or penal atonement, meaning that something was done, something was given out, something was paid. Jesus paid for us in our place. This is what this idea of Christ the substitute means. And what this basically infers is that he created uh, a way, really, for us to be forgiven. This is really important. All right, this is really important because here's the problem. Here's what the Bible is going to identify. All of us is going to say is that we've all sinned. What that basically means, and then there's a lot of different ways in which you can define this and go into details about this and nuance it, but at its simplest core, it basically means this, is that we, as created image bearers of God, we have not been faithful and true to live out our lives in the way that God designed for us to live it out. In other words, we've taken our lives back and we've said, I'll live life the way that I choose to live. And as a result of it, we've stained our soul and we've broken other relationships and we've offended God. That's what's happened with sin. In other words, there's been an offense, a cosmic offense has happened. I want to break this down for you real quick. And this is really not a message on forgiveness, but I want to break this down for you just so that hopefully this will make some sense to you. Whenever we're talking about forgiveness, forgiveness is a really important subject matter. And it's difficult for us to actually try to swallow and understand because of how difficult it is. But let's say, for example, if someone came over to your house and they stole your iPhone, all right, 
You know that they stole your iPhone. You later on that day, you call them up and you're like, uh, you stole my iPhone. Why did you do that? And they're like, oh, did I? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to bring it back to you. Please forgive me. What an idiot. I don't know why I did that. I should have done that. Please forgive me. I'm really sorry. You guys shake hands. He looks at you with kind of, you look at them with suspicion. You're like, all right, I'll forgive you, but don't, don't do that again. Like, whatever. And then the next week they come over and they steal not just your iPhone, but your iPad. And now you're like, what the heck? Why do they keep doing this? And you call them up and you're like, why did you do this? And they're like, I didn't do it. And even if I did, I wouldn't pay you back. So you take them to court, right? So here's what's going on. At some point, somebody's got to pay for what was taken. Something was taken. You were wronged. An injustice has happened. So therefore, something needs to be done. Justice demands something be done. So if this person is willing to give back what they've stolen and you are willing to forgive them, and you're able to exchange, that price is able to be paid, and you're able to go back on with your life. But if that person willfully chooses not to restore, then you take them to court, and the judge sits down with them and says, okay, you need to pay. It's going to cost you 800 bucks, 1,000 bucks, and you're like, I don't have 1,000 bucks, or they don't have 1,000 bucks to pay it back, and the judge says, okay, you're going to have to sit in jail for a year. That's, what you, that's your penalty. That's what's got to be paid in order to make right this wrong. All right, that's one option. The other option is for you to pull this guy aside, say he's a lifelong friend, and you know they don't have money. And you know for them to sit in jail, they've got kids, and if they were to go in jail, then their kids would end up being messed up, and that's not really making things better for anybody else either. So you, out of compassion in your heart, you're just like, ah. Pull him aside, pull the judge aside, and you're like, Your Honor, this guy offended me, did something wrong, but... I want to forgive him. Kind of grit your teeth and you're like, all right, I'm going to forgive him. That's what I'm going to do. What you're doing in that moment is you're actually absorbing the cost. Forgiveness demands an absorption of the cost all the time. If there's an offense, the absorption of the cost either comes by way of payback, by way of jail time, or by way of somebody absorbing it in themselves. So, you're not sweeping sin under the rug. You're not just saying, ah. Because any time you choose to forgive, and the greater the offense, the greater the absorption of pain. When you talk about a cosmic offense, our sins against an infinitely holy God, our sins are infinitely holy transgressions against an infinitely holy God. And what Jesus is basically saying is this, is that in order for me to create the way to forgive you, I must absorb your sin and I will suffer. All forgiveness always will entail suffering. This is why we hate forgiveness, right? This is why we don't like it. This is why when we're confronted with, like, what do we do? A person offended me, and I don't like the way they acted towards me. I don't like the way they treated me. This is one of the reasons why we would prefer to shy away. We prefer to go to another church. We prefer to leave and go to another family. We prefer to go to another job. We prefer to move to another town than actually go through the hard process of somehow absorbing the debt. Because it's painful. It brings suffering. And what Jesus is saying is, I, the Son of Man, as a king, I must suffer. I must go to the cross. I must absorb the debt. 
Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Why the cross? Why, why couldn't Jesus jump off a cliff? There's a lot of them in Israel. <laughs> why couldn't he ask someone to like, throw a rock at me really hard, knock me out, hang me? Why, why did Jesus say, I must go to the cross? Not, I must commit suicide, or I must have someone shoot me with an arrow. Why the cross? This is really significant. The cross in that day was a form of execution that was not just get the job done as quickly as you can. The cross entailed the most shameful form of making a person vulnerable, exposed, exploited, lonely, abandoned. And through that suffering, through that torture, through that, then death. And Jesus is saying, I must bear the cross. I must take upon myself what their sins do to them every day. And you need to know this. Our sins, left to themselves, create exploitation, create destruction, make us vulnerable. They whittle us down. They dehumanize us. At some point, left times eternity unless you're rescued from your sins. That's the state you'll be in. Outer darkness. That's why Jesus describes it as that. Total suffering. A place where the worm doesn't die. It's a place of total dehumanization because that's what our sins do to us. And Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer, be despised, be rejected, and die. So the final question I really want to ask is this and be done. How are then we to receive the king's agenda? This is really important because if indeed Jesus is the king, the king, not just any king, how do we approach a king? How do we approach any king? Do we approach kings like with our list of agendas, like here's what we want you to do, as a little lobbyist, here's what we want you to do. I mean, you may think about doing that, but usually it's an implication that we don't really have a high value of who that king is. But if we approach the king of kings, we don't approach the king of kings as a negotiator. You don't do that. You can't do that to a king if he's as great a king as Jesus claims to be and as Mark wants us to see as he, be, he is. And there's at least three different ways in which I think that we can point out how we're to approach this king. One, we need to approach him with humility. Mark chapter 8, 32 and 34, uh, through 34 says this, And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What's interesting to me about this in this context here is that Peter basically sees that there's a clash in his understanding of what the Messiah is to do. In Peter's mind, like I said earlier, I really think that what Peter had envisioned in his mind, that Jesus the king would rise to a throne, Peter would sort of be one of his advisors, maybe one of his chief warriors. And Peter had envisioned in his mind sort of sitting on the top of a mound, sitting on top of a throne amongst a bunch of other would-be leaders that were raised up, and Peter would have power. He would exercise greatness and might and dominion alongside of the king of kings. And what was at stake when Jesus says, I'm going to die, was not just that, oh, Jesus, that's a bummer. We love you so much. We're going to miss you. But was, it was not that at all. What Peter was absolutely afraid of losing 
was his entire scripted agenda for his life. You got to understand this. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is not very popular with a lot of us, especially who try to live or try to synchronize our lives with the American dream. When we somehow have this idea that we want a Jesus that we can add to our life and make our life happy and more fulfilled and help us pay our bills and have nice kids that are raised and raise a dog around a white picket fence and have a little garden in our backyard and recycle and drive a nice minivan. And all of these things happen in my life. And if for some reason anything collides with that dream, we freak out because it's not our agenda. What Jesus is saying really clearly here that throws Peter in a tailspin is that Peter actually thinks he knows what's best for his life and he comes to Jesus rebuking him. That's so different than we are. And how many times have we been very confused at what God was maybe doing in our life? And rather than humbling ourselves before him and putting our hand over our mouth and saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand. Help me understand. We give God what amounts to our middle finger. We don't come to him as a king, humble. We come to him expecting him to bow to us. Just like what Peter did. Jesus rebuked him and says, no, Peter, this isn't how it works out. Second thing we need to understand is that we need to have a new identity. And Jesus basically describes this in verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, for the gospel's sake, will save it. For what profit does it gain a man, or what profit is it a man uh, to gain the whole entire world but forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? A word that Jesus uses here in verse 35 twice, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life, that word life is an interesting word. There's different types of words that can be used uh, in the Greek to denote life. In this particular context here, it's actually the word we get the, uh, the, the word psyche from. We get the word psychology from it. And the way that the Greeks would have understood this word, the way that Jesus would have understood this word, is your psyche is your identity. It's who you are. It's how you see yourself. It's how you envision yourself. It's how you live your life. It's the way that you see yourself in the context of everything else around you. And Jesus says, look, if you come to me and you come with this idea that you have this life, this life carved out as to what you expect it to be, and you come to me hoping for me to just christen it or to baptize it or to just endorse it, without ever challenging it, without ever sort of modifying it or switching it around or maybe even canceling it all together. If you come to me with your preconceived life, your identity, you will lose it. Because what profit would it be to you if you gained the entire world? What happens? What would it look like if you gained everything? You had all the money in the world. You had all the pleasure that this world would offer to you. Everything you can imagine, the best career you could ever desire, the most beautiful spouse you can ever even dream of, the most perfect, pristine kids living in the most beautiful place. What happens if you had all of that? Jesus says, if you ever try to build your life, find your identity in those things, you will lose it. If you try to find your identity in being a spouse, you will lose your life. If you try to find your identity in your vocation, you will lose your life. If you try to find your identity in your treasures, in your little trinkets, in your toys, you will lose your life because we are always looking for upgrades, always. The reason why we're always looking for upgrades is because we inevitably know 
that 1.0 doesn't work. So we move on to 2.0. We move on to 3.0 as soon as 2.0 stops working. Because we know that everything in this world is a poor substitute for the one who created us in his image. We might not ever admit that. We might not ever say that. But the fact that we are constantly looking and on this quest to find something new, to put our heart around, to find our life in, is a simple fact that we believe the lie. And Jesus says, if you come to me trying to protect and keep your life, you will lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life, if you're willing to let go of your dreams, if you're willing to pry your hands off of the identity of being attached to your spouse or attached to your vocation or attached to the amount of money you have or the little toys and trinkets that you hold on to, if you're willing to let your life die to those things, if you're willing to be like a seed that's thrown into the ground that looks like it dies, you'll begin to germinate and grow. And you'll find your identity in me. The final thing is this. You need to have rightly ordered fears. In verse 38, Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. I think what Jesus is saying here is that the problem is that oftentimes we're ashamed of the wrong things. Meaning we are afraid of the wrong things. The reason why shame is there is because it's, we're afraid, we're fearful of the wrong things. We fear the wrong things are going to happen to us. What Jesus, I think, is trying to say is that we need to have a clear view of who he is. If he is indeed a king, then this king, even though right now in his mission that he's describing for us here in Mark, even though his mission is not to go to a throne, but first it's to go to a cross, a shameful, horrific, dehumanizing cross, if at some point this king who after the cross will one day go to a throne and come back and judge the living and the dead, Jesus says you need to have a right prioritized baseline of fears problem is that we fear the wrong things we fear what people think we fear what others are going to assume we fear what can happen in the market rather than fearing the true and living god and jesus basically says don't be ashamed of me i'm a life giver i'm a king what i want to finish with is this is that if all you have is a picture of of Jesus as a king with a sword in his hand ready to judge you, ready to smash you and destroy you, that image really doesn't change the fundamental make makeup of your heart. It doesn't. In other words, the way to be brought and drawn into repentance and confession of sin is not to see a king over you with a sword ready to slay you because you're wicked. But if you see Jesus the way Jesus is describing himself here as a king, but not as a king coming with a sword in hand to slaughter you, but as a king who's coming to be slaughtered for you. That changes you. If you see Jesus as a king who has come and in his desire on the cross, on the cross in which he's stripped of his shame, stripped of his clothing, stripped of his identity, stripped of everything, and he's nothing more than an identityless man hanging on the cross that everyone's shunning, everyone's looking at, everyone's spitting on, turning away from, turning their faces from because he's lost his identity. If you see Jesus on a cross losing his identity so that you can be given identity, it changes you. You see him as a king. 
who comes humbly to you, bearing your sin, suffering to bear your debt. To the degree that you see that, you'll be a changed person. You'll be able to forgive people. You'll be able to give money away freely because money doesn't own you. The affirmation of other people doesn't own you anymore. You're free. Death doesn't own you anymore. The fear of death doesn't own you anymore. Why? Because Jesus conquered death, and now that you are belonging to him, you have conquered death too along with him. You're free. You're truly free. How? Because a king, the king of kings, the son of man, must suffer to rescue us. The degree to which you see that will be a changed person. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We'll partake of communion. I'm going to finish. I'm going to pray. What I want to do right now is I want for us to consider as we move into just singing right now and worshiping what this king has done. We'll partake of communion, the broken bread, and the juice reminds us of Jesus' broken body and the fact that his blood was spilled for us and shed for us. So I want for us, if you're a Christian, to enjoy that, to partake of that. It reminds us of what Jesus has done on the cross, but it also reminds us of a future celebration that we're going to have with him one day. I encourage you, if you're here as a family, uh, dads, lead your wife and lead your kids, perhaps, if you'd like, in the communion. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian. I encourage you to just trust in Jesus, to ask Jesus to wash you, to cleanse you. Come to him as a king who loves you. I'm going to pray. We'll sing and partake of communion together. We'll worship. God, we thank you right now for the opportunity to be able to sing to you, to pray, to confess sin, to partake of communion, to remember, Jesus, what you've done for us. God, I pray that our hearts, our affections would be changed, that you would pry our desires off of the things of this world, the things that we're trusting in, looking to, to somehow carve out, find an identity, find our life. God, those things that will at some point leave us stripped and broken and vulnerable and bare and without an identity. Because when they die, then we die with them. But if we have our hope and our confidence in the God who resurrected, then our hope can never die. Our hope will never see a night. Our hope will always remain. And Jesus, that's what you desire for us. You desire for us to have deep joy that's found in you. So we just want to come to you, God, checking our hearts, making certain that we come to you truly as if you really are who you claim to be, which is a king, the king of kings, the true king, the king who went to a cross for us.